About two clicks from here. Hey. I'd just like to gather your. <laughs> hey, get, get, get down! Get down! Oh. Hey, what's going on? No, he's with my crew! Oh, wow. Ben? What? What do you guys look This is Stanley speaking. Hey, who made you a disc jockey, lady? Well, well, Jolly Jack Kirby. By the way, Jack, the readers have been complaining about Sue's hairdo again. What am I supposed to do? Be a hairdresser? Next time I'll draw a bald headed. Welcome to another episode of the Bullpen Bulletins Podcast, a celebration of all things Marvel. I'm Vince B. I'm David Price. And tonight we have a special guest with us returning for, I think it's his third time now, Mr. Scott Cedarlin from Wednesday's Hall. Hi, hey, Scott. Hey, everybody. Good to have you here. It's always fun to join you guys. On the agenda tonight, we managed to snag Mr. Fraser Irving, the unbelievably talented artist of Marvel's Silent War. He did Clarion the Witch Boy for the guys down the block. He's got a series coming up for Image Comics. The guy's incredible. And we sat down with him for about an hour or so. And after you listen to that, we are going to mix it up on Civil War number 7. Yeah, I'm sure we have a lot of opinions on that little book. So check out Mr. Fraser Irving. And I was instructed on how to say it his first name by the man himself at the new york city comic-con we managed to survive that and you'll hear about our adventures at that brouhaha next week he told me fraser rhymes with laser 
which is cool because I was saying Frazier. Hell of a guy. Listen to this. We'll be back after the interview to talk with Scott and whoever may, whoever else may show up on Civil War number seven. Enjoy. Well, we've managed to snag the man responsible for the delightfully off-kilter visuals in Seven Soldiers, Clarion the Witch Boy, Iron Man the Inevitable, and most recently in Marvel's hard-hitting Silent War miniseries. Please welcome Fraser Irving. Hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. No problem, mate. Early in your career, you produced work for Tharg over at 2000 AD, a long-running magazine respected for its creative diversity. Can you tell us a little about your formative years as an artist? How did you break into the business? Um, well, I started out doing small press stuff back in 1995 because I'd like given up on like, doing comics because you know I'd, I'd hit like 18 and I decided that I wanted to be a rock star instead. Then at art school, I kind of got reignited with the idea of comics. Uh, more as an antidote towards the academic nonsense that they were teaching me. Um, so I did like um, what well, ended up being a 200-page graphic novel in 1995, writing and drawing it. We sold about maybe 50 copies, but uh, I only got the attention of the editors at 2000 AD. Um, but obviously that wasn't enough to get them to approach me, so I had to send in samples working to professional scripts. And it, I mean, it's, it's not particularly glamorous when I say like, you know, I just bashed on their door for like a couple of years kept showing them my stuff and eventually uh, one of them just kind of like saw something he liked which was um, that would have been 2000 that would have been yeah seven years ago and uh, once they gave me my first job the rest just started following which is uh, pretty good who are some of your artistic influences uh all oh, right uh, okay well when I was a kid obviously John Byrne was my hero you know he was the man um and uh, George Perez at the time. I mean, this is this is like uh, when I was, you know, eleven. Yeah. So clearly, the kind of stuff I was drawn to back then was very action-packed, not particularly, uh, how should we say, arty. This stuff is very kind of clear and easy to read, and everyone looked perfect as well. Um, later on, I discovered Frank Miller, Barry Smith, and uh, Mike Mignola all at the same time. Um, that had been about ninety-two or something when I saw Sin City, Hellboy, and um, uh, Barry Smith's Weapon X book. Uh, and that totally blew my head off, because that was like, it was much, much, much more arty than the stuff I'd been reading up until then. And I didn't know you could actually do that kind of stuff in comics. I thought, <laughs> I thought you had to draw kind of uh, John Byrne-type figures, and if you didn't do that, then, you know, you were a joke. But then seeing these guys, um, and they had radically different styles and their approaches to the medium, uh, that kind of uh, turned me on to other artists, and then I got into, throughout the 90s, I got into Richard Corbin, I uh, discovered Bernie Wrightson. Um, I rediscovered some old artists who I neglected when I was a kid, such as uh, Gene Colan, and when he was doing his, um, his run on Doctor Strange, which, when I read it as a child, I didn't understand it. I just, you know, where were the costumes? You know, where was the punching? Um, but when I saw it again as an adult, I could actually see there was storytelling, there was mood, and it was actually to my more adult eyes far more appealing than the John Byrne stuff I'd loved um, and since then since I've actually been working as a pro artist um, I've had to actually look outside of uh, comics to kind of get my uh, you know uh, my, my brain fuel because uh, if I look at comics I automatically start dissecting it and you know I, I just I go looking for flaws because yeah, they're my competition but if I look outside the, art, the comic book world 
there's no competition there, so I, I I can steal new ideas. So I got into um I got into a guy called Virgil Finley, who was an illustrator from the 1930s to 1960s. Uh, he was an amazing art artist. He did like um, kind of stippling, where they're using droplets of ink to do science fiction illustrations for for magazines and novels. Um, deeply unappreciated by uh, the art world, it seems, but uh, he he was a a revelation. I think all, the one thing all of these guys had in common, from the Frank Miller stage onwards, was that all the ones I liked were doing something that was very different to each other. Um, and even though some of them the styles may be quite extreme. Uh, there was an element of weirdness. There was an element of something unreal about it, which separated it from realistic artwork or photography, for instance. Um, and yeah, so I, I, I don't think I've discovered anything new in the past couple of years. I've just been focusing on my own work. You know, I can't look around too much, otherwise I want to steal other other people's styles, <laughs> and that's fatal for someone like me. What you just mentioned about the different take on reality—that's very evident in your own work. I do agree with you about Virgil Finlay. He was incredible, uh, an incredible talent. And someone else whose work I see in a lot of yours is, are you familiar with Hans Bach? No. <laughs> um, if you've ever get a chance to see his work, he did spot illustrations in the old Castle of Frankenstein magazine, the, in the horror okay. film publications. His work is very similar to yours. It's just that... How do you spell his second name? B-O-K. Okay. And his work has this ethereal, just a strangeness to it that I find in your work. It's it's just a totally unique take on reality. Yeah, I, I, I just yeah, I just brought up Wikipedia, so I just see one of his pictures. I can see what you mean, actually. Yeah, there's a the wonder of technology, eh? There's a actually now you mention his name, he reminds me of an artist called if I just get the book out, Todd Shaw. Mm-hmm. Todd S H S C H O double R. I discovered his book in a, at San Diego Comic Con a couple of years ago. He does some stuff similar to this Hans Bock guy, in respect that it's it's even though clearly the, the, the artists are technically accomplished and they could render everything as they see it, for instance, they've chosen to kind of like take it and distort it to convey certain ideas. Which um, you're right. I mean, that, I'm I'm totally into that. The whole idea of uh, doing, especially in comics, I think the idea of depicting reality close to, too closely is, is missing out on an opportunity to actually say something with the artwork, which, you know, isn't as obvious as, like, uh, words that are being said or the actions that, that people are doing, but you're saying something else with the quality of line, you're saying something with colour, you're saying things with texture. Um, and I think a lot of the, the things I've done which have been successful in respect that people have got something else from them apart from just you know just reading a story, the the, the ones that actually kind of that I actually get remembered for, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, those things I think they happen by accident. It's more a case of um, I was doing a uh, story for 2008 called From Grace about four years ago, and it was my first digital piece of work. And the, the writer said he wanted it to look like a pencil drawing that had been painted lightly and I thought okay fine I can do that um, and when I was drawing it I was noticing there were a lot of flaws in my drawing there was like you know perspective errors there was anatomy errors and these are things which the deadline didn't allow me to fix so basically I had to kind of make do with what I could and I was always disappointed with the pages until later on 
when I saw it with a, a fresh perspective. And uh, I could understand why I was getting the reactions I got for it, because uh, I, to compensate for whatever flaws I saw in my own drawings, I was adding kind of extra shadows, adding more aggressive lines. And these lines were the ones that were conveying the, the monstrosity of the main character. They were conveying the inhumanity against uh, the, their, you know, their other halves on the other side of the mountain. And it didn't matter if things were slightly distorted, because that kind of enhanced the, 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 un, the unreality of it. Because this was an unreal situation. This isn't, it wasn't a story about some guy going to buy a pint of milk and then making a cup of tea. You know, this was about kind of people with wings fighting. People who don't have wings in the future where there's no civilization left anymore. And um, so I must say, I, could, I look at lot, a lot of these artists who are, are pretty out there, you know, they're real space cadets. And um, I used to think that they did everything intentionally and they could control the canvas and they could control color. And they were the ones who were screwing my, with my mind with their pictures. But I'm beginning to think now a lot of it is just accidental, you know. It's, um, I think, a, a true artist, not that I'm necessarily claiming I am one, although I do like to think I am one, um, a true artist should be able to pick up a pencil, do a drawing, and let whatever they're feeling or thinking in that state of life come through in the pencil work. So if I had a headshot of Captain America that I drew five years ago would look different to what I do now, because I'm in a different time and space in, in my life. And I think uh, a lot of that has to be instinctive or accidental, like I said. So uh, uh, I, the guys who I admire who are pretty, pretty out there, I'm, I think I'm beginning to get a bit of empathy for now. I think you, you do the same for, I guess, other people, because your take on, um, on Judge Death was uh, very out there. Uh, well, the thing with Judge Death was um, uh, Andy Dickel, the then editor of 2000 AD, uh, when I was in the office one day, he told me that Garth Ennis was thinking of doing a Judge Death series, and uh, they haven't got an artist for it yet, but if I wanted to do a tryout picture, go for it. So obviously I had nothing to lose. And I'd seen Judge Death drawn by other people, and I thought a lot of them had gone too far into the world of caricature uh, and excessive detail. I thought that the, the character visually was a joke because he was depicted so graphically that it was just stupid. Um, and so I thought, fine, I'll, I'll take it the other direction and I'll just make him almost entirely black. And then I kind of, you know, thought that looks a bit simple. And then uh, I thought, maybe if I just start doing some rendering on it. And before I knew it, the lines were everywhere and it was all about the black line. Um, and I looked at the, 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 the picture I did to kind of get the geek. Um, and all I could see was this writhing mass of like worm-like things all over the page which were making this picture of this hideous creature from another dimension that sees all, all, all crimes being committed by the living and uh, I must say it's like if, if I hadn't seen that there and then I probably wouldn't have sent the picture in to, to Diggle uh, I would have thought you know it doesn't look like Simon Bisley therefore I won't get the job um, but no, he saw it too which is quite nice uh, and so the whole series kind of had to be based around that which that does lead to problems where one can technically ink oneself into a corner Right, with Judge Death, uh, the story, the tone of the story had changed by the end of the second series. Um, it was no longer dark and grim, it was more satirical. And my lines have to reflect the story. So by the end of it, the dark horror lines, which are like writhing and squirming, were now looking a little bit like cartoons. And they're, 
that's when I thought we, 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 we should probably stop this because the, it was then the star was unsuited to it but um, if I did Judd Death again I'd draw him completely differently I think I'd have to because um, I got so bored doing that <laughs> In light of its publication schedule is producing comics for a weekly magazine like 2000 AD uh, more grueling experience than say working for Marvel with its monthly schedule? I'd have to say that doing the monthly stuff is far more grueling. Um, with the weekly comics, all I've got to reproduce in one go is, at most, eight pages. Um, although that was for the monthly, so yeah, for the weekly, uh, the most I've ever produced is six pages, and that's on Joe's thread. Um, and so therefore, it's bite-sized chunks. Even, I mean, their schedule generally, generally allows for two weeks for every episode. So artists do two and a half pages a week. Uh, I obviously uh, cranked them out faster than that but I still had the same lead time so I could do a job for 2000 AD and something else on the side as well very easily um, but with the monthly stuff um, the chunks are a lot larger so if I start an issue of Silent War I don't just like do five pages and then take a couple of days off and do something else I have to kind of like do the entire 22 pages because they are one story um, and if you lose momentum halfway through you know you end up doing stupid mistakes like forgetting what colour someone's hair is or drawing someone wearing a jacket in one page and then not wearing a jacket in another page. So you need to maintain your concentration for longer. Um, and also the stories, I mean, some 2080 stories I did, like entire series, were no longer than like a, a two-issue monthly. Um, yeah, I've never done like a two-issue two issue monthly for the Americans. It's always been like minimum four issues. So therefore the job as a whole demands more so um, it's definitely tougher doing the monthly stuff I mean you could look at it completely objectively and say it's the same number of pages it doesn't matter but um, I think psychologically when you've got to do 22 of these things plus cover uh, it's a lot more daunting than doing 5 I find your artistic vision impossible to resist I have to be honest let's talk about the process you employ in bringing your disturbing take on reality to light uh, when you res receive a script, how much of your process is pre-production work? Uh, and I ask this because y your unique style is present in every aspect of your work, even inanimate and, and lifeless objects like architecture, for instance, bear your unmistakable mark. How, how much preparation work, is, is, say for Silent War, did have you put into it? Uh, uh, that's a very... That's a loaded question there <laughs> um, uh, okay well let me step back first of all the, the first couple of jobs I did uh, like the Necronauts and Storming Heaven for 2008 I did a lot of preparation I bought Houdini videos which I never even watched I bought books on 1920s America I, I did loads of stuff yeah by the end of the day when I realised that after 60 pages of drawing these characters who I'm never going to draw again at least not in that story uh that most of the reference I got was actually useless and a lot of the good stuff that I did was kind of invented half out of memories of seeing things and half is just completely fabricated but using the laws of like light and shade and perspective to still kind of like make them convincing enough there was one moment in the Necronauts where I had drawn a, a shot of a building um, and they had like shutters and uh, kind of blinds you know the, the, the pull up and pull down blinds you have on windows and the writer emailed me saying that uh, blinds hadn't been invented at that point in time 
and as long as no one from like the Blind Shutters Association uh, of, of, of Europe was, was to see this page, <laughs> no one would actually notice or complain. And I'm like, he's got a good point there, very good point. It didn't matter either way. But um, so since then, uh, the amount of research I do or preparation, generally speaking, I try and keep down to bare minimum to retain the freshness mainly and also to avoid spending money on things which I don't need. Um, now with Silent War, for instance, I got this job very late on in the game. Um, I pretty much resigned myself to a very easy spring. I was going to do a few things here, a few things there, but generally hang out, play music, kind of travel to see my girlfriend, that kind of thing. And then I got this job. Um, and it basically meant I'm working every day since then. And that also meant that there was no lead time. So I couldn't actually do any preparation. Um, now, that wasn't a problem mainly because the characters had already been designed, of course. Um, there was very little new stuff to kind of like invent, uh, which was going to be used continually. Um, and then when I do have to invent a character, I mean, I've, I've done three now uh, for the Silent War thing. Uh, they, they get, I mean, David would send me like a vague description in the script. He tells me more about what they do than what they look like. So I kind of come up with a design to reflect what I think that they do. Um, and uh, they generally speaking get invented on the first page they're drawn. I mean, I sit there with Photoshop open and I'm like scribbling away and I might actually design the character in the first panel they appear just so that they, they fit that page comfortably. And, you know, you, you know when it works. I mean, I might spend half an hour doing it or two hours doing it. I spent an entire day designing a character at one point um, and it, that was a horrendous experience but you know when it clicks because it, it like you say it bears the undeniable stamp of something that I'm very familiar with like I can look at a character I've designed and go yeah right that's definitely one of mine I'm not copying anyone else there but um, other stuff like visions of uh, Attilan um, certain parts of New York a lot of this stuff the reference I could get was either too extreme in someone else's style or it was just, you know, rubbish, basically. I mean, there's a couple of scenes for on the moon where you see, like, the ruins of the old Cree city which Atalan landed on. Um, and David was going to send me loads of reference for it, he said, but then he, he said he discovered that they weren't particularly good, so it'd be better if I just made it up. And... Um, I find those moments of invention to be kind of some of the more thrilling moments when doing a comic strip, when uh, I get a chance to kind of do something brand new very spontaneously. The only problem with that is I have to make sure that I don't design a character who's got a head which is five feet wide if later on in the story he has to walk through a door which is two feet wide. If I can avoid obvious things like that, then, then yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's much more fun just to make it up on the spot, which was pretty much what I did with Clarin as well. I mean, I... I did a couple of sketches of him for um, for the boss, but uh, and one fully painted image, which was going to be the cover to issue one. But beyond that, each page that came along, it was like, okay, read the script. Okay, there's a house there. It's got a window. I'll just start drawing and see what happens. Um, if I need to like do scenes like New York, you know, obviously you need reference to kind of like see if there's any anything distinctive about the architecture, but. Um, it's always best, I think, to run that through the the Irvingometer uh, uh, and like make it a bit weird, make it a bit mine. Otherwise, it will look like someone's traced a photograph, and I I can't stand up with it like that. 
So Silent War, in essence, is essentially ripped from your psyche. I mean, it's it's almost unfiltered Fraser Irving. And, yeah. and as an illustrator myself, I'm incredibly envious of that because I find it incredibly difficult to translate the images in my mind onto the paper. That seems second nature to you. And I, I find it brilliant that you could do that. Well, Doctor, I think you can, you can draw a musical analogy to this because uh, I know some people who are brilliant in mu- musicians who can sight read perfectly. You can put anything down in front of them and they'll play it note perfect. Yeah, they can't write tunes. You know, they, they, they can't write, you know. Mm-hmm. And other people like me, for instance, who are hopeless at kind of reading music, can't, you know, have technical limitations of a, an extreme nature. Yet writing brand new melodies is relatively easy. I think in any creative field, you kind of have to know what your strengths are. I mean, I've worked for editors who were very adamant that um, you should always criticize the artists because they learn from their mistakes. But I see that as counterproductive because you can keep knocking away until they've got nothing left. You must also, at the same time, you know, smack them with one hand and then, you know, console them with the other. You know, you have to point out the strengths in every artist or creative type because um, then one can build on that. I mean, you're right. I mean, the drawing things from life is a real pain in their neck for me. Um, it's more like work than anything else. Um, and even though if I put my mind to it, I can do it okay, you know, I'm, my drawings are shoddy by compared to some, you know, proper kind of draftsman. Um, yeah, making stuff up, you know. If someone comes up to me and said, draw me a monster, you know, I'm happy, you know. <laughs> I can just, like, whatever, pour it onto the page, and there's a bang, there it is. Right. Um, and I think uh, it's not something anyone should ever be jealous of, I must say, or envious of in any way, because uh, every artist has got their own skills. I mean, I don't know your work. I haven't actually... I haven't looked it up or anything. <laughs> um, I didn't know you were an artist. But um, I'm sure that in, in, in it, every artist is like a certain something which only they can do. Right. Which other people can't. And as long as they know what that is, you know, we're all laughing. Everyone's happy. So in essence, you're the John Coltrane of comics. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're more along the lines of Ornette Coleman. But <laughs> oh, okay, we'll go with that. Yeah, who, 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 needs, who needs scales, man? It's just like... <laughs> That's right. I find your color work to be impeccable. Every page of Silent War has its own unifying color palette. That Some pages feature a complementary scheme of blues and, and say, orange-reds, while some pages showcase excellent work with a single or very limited color, L- like the pink sequence in the first issue where Medusa is a bit at odds with Black Bolt and yeah. then you had the, the cold bluish greens of the one experimental facility. How much thought do you put into your choice of color? Uh, well, these days um, I always start off with like a ground color at the back of the bottom, uh, as the background of every Photoshop page I do. And that's kind of a scanned-in texture which I've made by hand and then put into the page. Because I always think uh, if you're going to put colour on a page, you can't work onto white. You need to work onto some, something, like a real painting. So you let some kind of background colour bleed through and unify it all. Um, and with Silent War, I'd like, have every page with the panel shapes drawn out and tiny scribbles of where the figures are going and what they're doing. And then I'd put the colour in, in the background. And I'd have to make a choice then to just divide the scenes up by their their backing colour and that was a very conscious attempt I mean the scene at the beginning of the of, of the uh, I was going to say the movie then 
scene at the beginning of the comic where um, the Inhumans go into the theatre. The whole fight afterwards outside, I, I looked at it and I thought, I've got grey. And then after that, I've got like this kind of, kind of cold blue for like the interrogation chain, but then I've got space blue for the Inhumans. And I thought, the only thing I haven't got in there yet is yellow. So I put four, four or five pages of yellow in there. Uh, and I thought, no matter what I do, the yellow is going to be the thing that anchors that lot together. Um, sometimes, I mean, the inhuman scene on when they're having that big discussion and Black Bolt snaps his fingers. Um, initially, I thought that was going to be kind of cold and kind of sky blue. In the end, it kind of turned into something a lot creepier and there, there were lots of kind of, especially with Medusa's hair, there's a lot of red and stuff, which was jarring. And that was, like I said earlier, that was kind of a happy accident because then I realised that that scene was all about discord. It was all about a ruling elite which was previously perfectly harmonious, slowly beginning to fragment. And so having this kind of sickly green with this red on it, I looked at it and thought, okay, that, I'll remember that for the next time I need to do something like it. Um, with issue three, I'm, being, I'm trying to vary it a little bit. I'm trying to... Um, like if you see a scene in like the dungeons of Atalan where Maximus the Mad is living um, I would like to kind of like over the whole process of the story slowly change the hue so maybe for instance the first time you see him in there it's like a cold blue and by the very end it's either a sickly ochre or like a really hot kind of like deep crimson but doing this slowly um, that takes planning of course um, and also entails knowing what happens in the script but, uh, I mean, apart from, like, the, the the basic choice of, like, having a scene all in blue, when, once I get in there, I try and keep it as uncluttered as possible. I used to think that if you rendered everything as it was in real life, then it would work. But I've since discovered that's nonsense, because, you know, if I take my glasses off now and look at my room, it's just a jumble of shapes. Yeah, if I wanted to communicate what it was like to have a shiny new guitar in the corner... I would have to bend the laws of colour, bend the laws of light to convey this. Um, and I'm, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm quite surprised to hear you say you actually think my sense of colour is, as you say, impeccable. Uh, because I think, technically speaking, my colour theory totally sucks. I, uh, I, if you were to tell me, kind of, here, go outside and draw that church and paint it in watercolour, I would have a very hard time trying to figure out how to get the grass to look like it does. Yeah, making stuff up, telling stories, using colour as a storytelling aspect of the work is a lot easier. You know, red is hot, it's angry. You know, the, the rules are really, really, really basic. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually quite surprised that after all these years that uh, so far no one has blown the whistle on my lack of colour knowledge. I think you're a little bit too hard on yourself <laughs> because that's the first thing I noticed while going through Silent War was the amazing it's almost an innate feel for color that you have like to get back to the discord scene your your choice of Medusa's blazing magenta hair it, it contrasts beautifully with the cold colors surrounding her and it, it almost makes her the focal point of that scene and well yeah I mean like I said that's I mean accidents uh, I, you can call them instincts if you want I like to think that I've been drawing enough and looking around enough to kind of have an instinctive approach to this so I, I might be painting a scene bright turquoise and not know why 
until I draw something else which complements it, and then I, I have to defer to my subconscious and go, all right, yeah, you were you were correct. But um, I mean, I, I think you could get too too technical. You could get too tricky with it. You could try and use colours without. I mean, like my my sense of colour theory is okay. It works, yeah. Yeah. But I'm not a scientist. I'm not a colour scientist. So therefore, I wouldn't be able to say, I know, every character who might be slightly evil will be a slight hint of ochre. <laughs> you know, because after a while, someone's going to draw a scene where you've got, like, nothing but evil characters in the whole room looks like puke. And I'll be thinking, okay, it doesn't work, you know. Right. Um, but I think uh, going with the instincts works best for me. Which And having that kind of background colour, you know, it really unifies it. it and I paint everything in monochrome to begin with anyway. Then then I tweak the colours later. That's my secret. Mm-hmm. But don't tell anyone. Okay. I, I, I do think it... I, I, and I'm far from being an artist. Uh, I do think for the, to, for, to the reader, it's just... It works so much... It just it's brilliant. Because it just sets the mood so perfectly that uh, it makes the reader just go into it more and be more present in it and just forget that he's reading just a comic. Exactly. Well, it's, it's nice that you say that, um, because obviously, like every other artist or writer or creative who has the internet, I've been sniffing around to see what people have been saying. And uh, right. I, I, I know that... Um, okay, I, I, okay, I might be slightly self-deprecating about my colour theory sense, but you know, I know what my work is doing. I know what it's saying. I don't necessarily know the audience particularly well. I... I mean, no one knows the audience. There's too many of them. Um, but I don't know if my moody style is going to suit the audience for the comic I'm drawing. But no one's going to surprise me by saying, hey, dude, like Death Freezer Irving, it's like all dark and grisly. Because <laughs> it was meant to be dark and grisly. And <laughs> if you want happiness and bright lights and fluffy bunnies, read Disney or something, you know? Uh, it's, it's nice to hear, like, a. Uh, it's not just like there are, if the message isn't being communicated I'd be mortified if someone read it, my stuff and said yeah it looks really kind of ordinary because right. I've gone out of my way to make it look weird yeah but um, right. it's nice to know that clearly there are people out there who can relate to the kind of weirdness that I'm doing because no because sometimes you, you, you read comics or, or not even uh, some, maybe sometimes in movies um, just the setting isn't it doesn't convey or it doesn't help uh, the action that is taking place mm. and the fact that uh, what you do does it, I think it's brilliant and again me not an artist at all but uh, but it, as a reader I, I just thought it was just great right now uh, cool. it, it, let's look at Silent War as opposed to Clarion which was a very cold book because the, 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 the story demanded it. It was very icy blues and very cold greens. But in Silent War, you, you, you've shifted, and it's a very visually a different book because you, you, while you do have the cold colors where the scenes demand it, then you alternate and you have these bursts of, of fiery reds and oranges, uh, particularly evident in that double-page battle sequence between Gorgon's group and the Fantastic Four. I mean, those pages just explode with color, and then you subtly shift it back to the, as you, as you call it, the monochromatic with the, with the very cold colors. It's very unsettling. 
unsettling. And I think in terms of the Inhumans, who are out of this world anyway, they're very unhuman-like, so they're almost alien to us. It, it works very well. You're transported to this other world. It, it, you've done a beautiful job with this book. Thank you very much. That was the intention. Um, I'm, glad you fi- I'm glad you can see it, because that means that in some way I have succeeded. Oh, I'd, um, say, I'd say you have. <laughs> well, that's good. Well, I mean, I'd be uh, talking about kind of like using colour and stuff to kind of create a mood and take you to a specific place. With each job I do, I'm trying to kind of refine this. Because you, uh, you always make mistakes. You always miss things and think, oh, if only I'd given him sandals. It would have been perfect. <laughs> and things like that. Um, for the next job, I mean, the thing I'm working on kind of after Silent War, or it's going to be released after Silent War anyway, with, from Image, is a thing called Gut Spill which is set in the belly of a whale. And so therefore the environment is automatically, you know, the restrictions are there. You know, you can't have shiny buildings, there's certain materials you can never see. And I thought, okay, right, I have to actually start to control this. And in that book, the the use of color is key because like certain parts of this town will be color coded and they'll have to be color coded in such a way that someone will read it and subconsciously know where they are. And the colour also has to, obviously, you won't be able to contra- you contrast with the mood of a scene, like you can't have a happy scene of a, a young couple kissing and running through the street if the colour is dark green, yeah? The dark green is, is oppressive, it's kind of slightly sickly as well. So therefore, I'm going to be, have to think a hell of a lot more about this. Um, and because, obviously, I'm working in, in collaboration with the writer, um, I can actually suggest colour ideas the things that happen later on, as opposed to working on, on Marvel or DC scripts where uh, the writer and the editor work together, and then, then I get it, and I have to work with it. Um, although I must say, David is very very responsive to ideas I've come up with. He often describes things in his pages, and I completely ignore them, uh, because I think, you know, it's like if, if anyone ever describes in a script, you know, a Jack Kirby type machine... One thing I can guarantee them is that I'm not going to be drawing a Jack Kirby type machine because Jack Kirby drew those. And on certain occasions, Barry Smith drew them and so does Mike Mignola. But, you know, I don't draw them. I can't draw them. That's not my voice. If I drew it, it would look like a joke. So I would obviously have to come up with something else. Um, obviously, all of this should hopefully contribute to creating the mood because ultimately, you know, the end of the, the end of the day, the game is that someone should read this. And feel a sensation of some sort. It doesn't matter if it's thought-provoking or, or not, or if it makes them laugh. But as long as those minutes or hours they spent reading weren't completely wasted, you know, I mean, I can read things which leave me cold. And I have done, and I did last week. I won't mention names, but I picked up some comics and I read the whole thing. I put them down, you know, and I felt like writing a letter of complaint saying, I want my 15 minutes back. <laughs> I could have done a dishes. And I read that. But I... It, love it or hate it I hope that whoever does read my stuff is at least kind of I don't want to say aroused because that's kind of kinky but kind of stimulated oh, that's even worse um, moved in some way positively or negatively um, and talking to you two chaps well at least there's two out there that actually got something from my work so thank you very much I would add enchanted to that list <laughs> and uh, <laughs> was the book you were reading Ultimate Power by chance no, I haven't read that yet. Okay. No, no I, I, I see where you're coming from. Right. I, see, I see the mathematics, but no, no. This, right. No, I, 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 there's I, a lot of comics I don't read, I must say, and much, 
the main reason for me not reading them is down to Five Night Like the Artwork. Right. Um, and because I've this one which I had to put down, I didn't know what the artwork looked like. You see, that was my mistake. I didn't leaf through it. I picked it up on recommendation, and I threw it back down again with disgust. <laughs> <laughs> now, in, in addition to your color sense, which is something very, very new to the Marvel Universe, your rendering style is almost the complete inverse to traditional inking techniques, where, where artists will mold the features of that which they're fleshing out with blacks, uh, say, you know, the thin lines for the light areas and heavy blacks for the darks. Mm -hmm. y you work in the opposite. Y y you allow areas of color to define the dark areas, and you bring depth to your images with light color. It it's, it's a very innovative way to work, and to be honest, it's very, very different from what we normally are exposed to in mainstream comics. Thank you again. Uh, I think uh, what well, that method is like... That's basically me painting, or me trying to paint, because computer painting is a lot easier than real paint. Um, I mean, I've done the heavy inking thing. Uh, I like to think I got myself a bit of a name for being the, the guy who used lots of black ink. Um, and, uh, but when it comes to doing the digital stuff, you know, uh, sometimes you do need to, like, kind of obey certain rules, because if you don't, then the picture doesn't work. But then there are certain frames where you can play around with them and bend the rules. And... If you bend them just enough to not break them completely, then the picture can still work. But the kind of strangeness about it will, again, it'd be kind of like credits for the, the, the mood factor. Um, with the Silent War, um, unlike uh, the gut sort of thing I'm doing, which is quite sketchy, quite, there's a lot of energy in the drawing. Silent War, I thought, had to be a lot more precise because there's a lot more, there's a lot more beautiful women in it, basically. And you can't draw, I can't draw, beautiful women with sketchy lines because to me it's all about the smoothness of skin the curve you know it's contraposta that kind of thing right um the sketchy lines wouldn't work so i was doing my my inking as it were doing the drawing bit and i kind of did outlines of all the sketches and then got rid of the sketch layer and um which is a layer i draw underneath but okay photoshop people will know what i mean if they don't whatever but um and i looked at like the outlines i'd drawn and the outlines are pretty much saying everything they need to. And that's when I hit upon the idea of just using the lights and the colors to kind of like create the form. And have the lines, almost like the, the sentries, kind of guarding the posts between colors. Um, and so that, that was kind of an accident, because normally I, w I would have filled it in black. But having looked at it, I think, yeah, that's, that was the way I was supposed to, that they were supposed to teach me how to paint at college, you know, where there is no black in real life not the colour anyway uh, so you have to make it up out of dark greens or dark blues and I'm thinking okay I'm getting a chance to do it now um, my only fear is if this, if this is successful or popular should I say if it goes down well because um, this is only the first major project I've done in this style if it is popular then I can count the number of weeks before someone starts copying my style and I have to change it again <laughs> Well, it, it's very beautiful work, and, and it's just uh, it's a real treat to be able to, to read something like this on a monthly basis for a short time. I, I think it, yeah. visually it, it's so stunning that it just, I forget everything that's going on, and you, you completely, like I said, en en enchant me. You, you draw me into this story, and for a, a 15, 20-minute interview, I, I, you've got me. I'm right there, and that's incredibly difficult to pull off. Thank you very, very much. Yeah. It's a... But I hear that very often, apart from my girlfriend. 
She's always in awe of my talent. But, uh, no, yeah, so thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you like it, you know. And I, I'm also fully aware that, um, you know, uh, it takes different strokes to make the world go round and all that. Um, I mean, my opinions on art differ with almost violent passion with many of my friends and my peers. Um, so it's good to, it's, I must say, I bookmark every review I see online, <laughs> the good and the bad, because I think, you know, one shouldn't hide from either. There are people who avoid criticism, but like, you know, if you, oh, come on, man, I hate to say it, I'm not going to mention any names, of course, I can't do that, that's this not, not right, it's not proper, but there are loads of people <laughs> working in this business who have egos which are more fragile than, you know, the, the gentlest of eggs, you know, some people, you can't even... You can't even say, yeah, I, I quite liked it, because they want to hear you say, I loved it, you know? Um, and uh, I make a point of trying not to be like that. So, like, if I, if someone goes online and says, you know, actually, what's the quote? There was one guy online, and he says, uh, he thought Simon Morris, she won. He thought my artwork, I think he liked the story, but the artwork he said was so bad that I should be prevented from ever drawing a comic strip again for the rest of my days, and I should take all the money I've earned from this, and enrol in the Joe Kubert school, or oh. at least buy some tracing paper. <laughs> Which, to me, <laughs> and that's, that's, I think that's really funny. Um, <laughs> I know is. where he's coming from. But, uh, uh, you know, there's some people who are just very good at kind of snagging other people off. Um, but clearly, it wasn't his thing. And I looked at the list of the things he quoted in his pull list, as it were. And his favourite artists, you know, were people who I don't actually own any of their work, you know. Really, he's... Our tastes are completely opposite, but knowing that's not a problem. Um, it would it would bug me if he started kind of wanting to get a reaction or a rise out of me because that's just provocation. But um, I've said some very nasty things to my friends about other artists' work, and you know I generally meant it. I I really think there's some there's some terrible things being made out there in all walks of life, not just comics and movies, music and whatever. But um, so therefore I have to expect that there's going to be someone out there that has the same kind of feelings towards my work. But like I said earlier about you should, the artists should focus on their strengths within their work as well. I think it's also nice to hear like uh, when something is working, like when I read a good review online, you know, it, as long as they pick up on the right things. Uh, there was a case in point was a review of Clarion, where um, that again, that got a lot of bad press in the previews because people were describing me as a 16-year-old goth kid doing his high school art project. And uh, one of one of my favourite ones was um, "Guy can't draw, but the colourist saved his life." And I'm like, "Mate, that was me." <laughs> it's part of a whole, okay. <laughs> but, um, but the best thing I read was a, uh, I think it was a girl. She described my art, my art, as um, uh, dark, cartoony, and then put after that, Smurfs on acid. And I was like, "Wow, dark, cartoony!" All of a sudden, a review had actually like given me the words I needed to name that style because I really I'd been wrestling with that for some time I wanted it to be more realistic yet it just wasn't happening that the lines just weren't falling out that way then I realized that it was basically me doing um kind of like you know the Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs thing the kind of the, the old school Disney style you know uh I read up on a whole bunch of animators from that era and some of them I could you know, we're like blood brothers in that respect. We we could have both done the same project, um, although they would have animated them and I would have done comics. But anyway, um, yeah. So it's nice to hear good and bad. I think just um, some I, I get the occasional bit of hate mail, but I get the occasional bit of a 
you know, love mail as well, which is quite nice. So I'll add you two to the love pile. There you go. It's tough because there are about a billion different definitions of the word aesthetics, and no two people are going to see this the work uh, the same. And let's be honest, some people just don't get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's okay though. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm I'm really into King Crimson there. Yeah? I really, really like that kind of far out, that kind of very intense, very heavy, progressive jazz rock fusion thing. I'm really into it uh, because to me, it's all about the noises they make and the, the, what you can make an instrument say. Yeah, out of my entire circle of friends, there's probably like two other people that like it. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that King Crimson suck. What it means is that you know the rest of the world just never got turned on to them. Right. I mean, like Van Gogh, you know, he died a pauper, apparently. Um, yeah, you know, 100 years later, people think he's a god. It's like, eh, it just, they just have to catch up. Well, add me to the list of King Crimson fans. Hey, nice one. <laughs> I love Robert Fripp. Uh, this question may seem crazy, but are you a fan of the paranormal? Uh, how do you mean? Topics like UFOs and... Oh, right, okay. Uh, the whole 14. Stuff, right, yeah. Charles Fort. Um... To a certain degree, I suppose. I have an open mind, you know. I ask this because your representation of the human form is so close to that which people have reported when they describe those mysterious men in black with, with the pinched features and the elongated faces. It's really unsettling, and I love it. I love that you do that. Well, that's, that's okay. Maybe, maybe that's why I'm not getting much sleep at night. Maybe they're coming, taking me away. <laughs> I'm going there, under sedation, they're going... Okay, now you can take your reference photos, Mr. Irving. And that's when I'm doing my research, probably. Actually, that would make a lot of sense. Well, thank you, Mr. Irving, for being with us. I had a great time and learned a lot, and you've given me some uh, a better insight into your work, which I appreciate. Awesome. You keep buying it. <laughs> I'll buy three copies. Yes. Yay. <laughs> I get two cents royalty. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> so thank you very much. Cool. Cheers, man. Bye-bye. Here we go. How about that? That was cool. Yeah. What a guy. So be sure to check out Gutsville from Fraser at uh, Image Comics. It, I, the preview images that they uh, published in the Diamond catalog for this month were, yikes, so good. Now that I'm reading Silent War, so I mean, yeah, it's pretty much based on him that I'll be picking that up. Yeah. And I'm going to try and scare up his old 2000 AD stuff, too, because I just love his artwork. So let's do it. Let's talk about Civil War Seven. Now, I, I have to preface whatever I'm going to say about this thing with the fact that I had formulated an opinion on the book before I read Frontline Number 11, and my DCBS box came Friday, and that was the first book I, I pulled out. And after reading Frontline 11, my opinion of the entire series has changed. Uh, there's a little bomb dropped in there, and for those who haven't read it yet, I'm not going to ruin it for you. So I will just say I, I think it was incredibly short-sighted on Marvel to put something like that in a tie-in book. A tie-in book to me is Wolverine, Captain America, Iron Man, Spider-Man. Those are tie-in books. To me, Frontline is just an extension of the Civil War main series. I never saw the two of them separate. I just basically they were always to be they were always meant to be read together you're not going to read frontline and not read civil war you might read civil war minus frontline but you're not going to read frontline by itself without also reading civil war so okay i agree I, I with you what, i can understand where you're going with with you know they should have included it in the main series but i don't think that i i'm just 
I'm not keen on calling Frontline a tie-in issue or tie-in series to Civil War. Well, sure it is, because it's a separate book, which is stupidity in itself. Why couldn't they have Mark Miller, Millar, whatever which way you want to say it, and Paul Jenkins both write Civil War? Take the stuff that was intended for Frontline and put it in the main story where it belongs. Because the surprise ending of Frontline changes the entire texture of Civil War. It, it just it, it knocks it on its ass. It, it casts one of the major players in, in a light that you hadn't seen him in going... You would never know, judging by Civil War 1-7, to what this person had done. And it's major. It's big-time status quo-changing revelation. It, it belongs in the main book. So, well, well, I guess I'll say that as someone who... I've approached Civil War, the whole event kind of differently and probably more focused. I haven't, other than books I was already buying, I didn't go for any of the the, uh, the, the tie-ins or crossovers. So, like, the only Civil War book I really read was the Civil War. Um, and even throughout the whole thing, I felt there was, you know, possibly some coloring to the, the series, some, some uh, stuff that was going on that I wasn't getting that... Uh, I always felt like, you know, was I missing stuff? And it sounds like something big ended up being missing from the seven issues of the, the main series. Right. And I'll be honest with you, I did not read Black Panther, the Civil War tie-ins, but I recently bought the collected edition of 21 to 23 and then 24 and 25, the, the Civil War issues. And I'll tell you, when you read those, it makes... A lot of the stuff in the main book, let's just say, make a little bit more sense as to yeah. what's going on. And I realize that they can't publish, you know, 200-page issues of, of 1 to 7 because that's what this thing would have required to get all this information in there. But there are certain things that they should have put in the main story. Like, let's talk about that one page in Civil War 7 where Namer pops up with the Atlantean contingent. If if you only read Civil War, you got to that page and thought, uh, okay, it's Namer. Well, uh, what the hell's going on here? You know, but if you read Frontline and Wolverine, it kind of makes sense what's going on here. You had all the information necessary, but as far as this page goes, it's like, okay, here comes a bunch of blue guys and with Namer. Like, what's well, what's going on here? Well, in, in issue six, we saw Sue went to go visit him. But, I mean, you're right. I mean, yeah, you just have that one page, and then and then you're right. Then that's, that is it. Yeah, I, I read Iron Man 14, and there was, some, um, there was some insight into Tony in that issue that I wasn't getting all throughout Civil War. And then, you know, so I'm, I'm reading it, and I'm like, okay, you know, fine. I can maybe go along with, with, with his point of view. Then I get to the last page, and I'm like, well, okay, now he's back to being a dick again because he pulled he pulled a stunt at the end of that issue that um that might have been um, merciful, but it was just like, wow, okay, fine. And I won't spoil anything for anybody right now, but the uh, I, I definitely see your point with, with tie-ins. And since you already started with the whole, if you check out that page with Namor, why don't we... Why don't we dig in to Civil War? Let's start with Scott, since he's our guest. Okay. I guess my thoughts are... More and more I think of it, I think when I first read the book, when I when it was done with issue 7, I was a lot going, well, geez, that's it? That, that was what everything was? 
but as because it seems like it ends rather quickly um, but as a, as I've thought about it and as I'm flipping through it now I probably am, am liking this issue more than I've liked most of the series I think it does a, a decent job at it's it's probably gotten me interested now in really seeing where does the Marvel Universe go after this. And now that I've, I've been able to reflect on the entire series, and I think, or, or I know it, that's what the series has been. It's been to kind of turn everything on its head, and and it has me going, okay, you know, Cap's in situation A, Iron Man's in situation B, you have the initiative going on, and everything, and I'm really... I'm really curious to see where does it go from here. Right. I I, I, I think this issue worked on that on that aspect. Yeah, it. I I totally agree with you. Well, I think the ending was perfect because when when you're dealing with free will and and fundamental human rights, abstract concepts, there's no concrete solution. You you can't have any kind of finality because if we knew how to approach these these concepts we would have already done it in the real world. So I, I guess it was a trial and error thing, examining the Marvel Universe in terms of these concepts. And you can't have an ending when, when, when you're dealing with stuff like that because there is no ending. You can't solve the problem. It's impossible to solve those problems. Or like I said, we'd be living in utopia right now. So I, I think, yeah, that the ending was really well done. And I think it was one of the only possible endings they could have finished out the the series with which leaves it open for a lot of other the story possibilities now are a lot richer than they were before this series so i guess it was a good thing i think captain america he he's more popular now and he's more alive to me now than he has been in 20 years and unfortunately i have to say the same thing about tony stark right but as a whole i think the series was successful i and like I said, in light of Frontline 11, I wish they got rid of some of the the battles and focused more on the, the personalities behind it because it would have meshed well with the concepts they were trying to examine. When you're talking about human rights, does it make sense to show all these knockdown, drag-out fights when you're dealing with a concept? Yeah, I think one or two were, would have been needed to to illustrate that the, this is brother against brother it's not right and you know and they're fighting over over this registration act which in itself is a sticky wicket but did we need all that we they should have and i know this is what i'm going to be repeating this many times they should have put the information in frontline 11 in the main series it, it, it's it's almost it, it boggles my mind why that wasn't in here. It, it would have add a whole nother layer to the series. Maybe because wonder, they just realized it was already running so late, and they just didn't need McNiven to add any more to his load. I I don't. I mean, I'm not. I don't know. And 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 I know I interrupted Scott, but since Scott said he wasn't reading Frontline, is Frontline Eleven? If you haven't been reading the first ten issues, is Frontline Eleven? something you would recommend to anybody who read Civil War 7? Yes. Regardless whether they liked it or not, just to get more insight, or, or, or if they're looking at the ending of Civil War number 7, through whatever colored glasses they're looking at it through, do you not want them to be tainted with Frontline 11? 
No, it, it's necessary information. Okay. It, it it makes the actions of a certain individual. He's oh, see. I don't want to. I don't want. How do I say it without spoiling it? <laughs> it 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 adds another level of complexity to the decisions made, and okay. it, in my opinion, shows that this hero has feet of clay. He's very human, and he makes mistakes. He's not as perfect as we thought he was, and he's not as altruistic as we thought he was. He stacked the deck in his favor, and that's all I'm going to say before I reveal something that somebody will kill me for. Because, I mean, it's, it's a recently published book, so, and, and it's a major deal, and I, I, I wouldn't want to, to uh, spill the beans and ruin somebody's enjoyment of it, but it's, it's big doings, and it belongs in the series. It's just plain, it, it's stupidity that they left it out. It, okay. it boggles my mind why they did. And maybe it's unfairly, but I'm mean, comparing this a lot to the work that Miller's doing in Ultimates. And it seems like each and every issue of Ultimates has been really packed with with uh, ideas and a lot of a lot of character building. And it seems like here, at least in the main Civil War title, they've been going a bit more for the the widescreen approach, which hasn't given him. I think the room to do some stuff that he does very well, and I think that's maybe what this book has suffered a bit from, is that it hasn't, it, it, I don't know if it's well defined, the characters it's played with, other than with how they stand on either pro or anti-registration. Right, I agree with you. That, that to I me, think, is the whole thing, how they define yeah. the characters. Because it seems like it's been very, I, don't, I guess I want to say, almost a surface level look at these characters where it's maybe been in things like Frontline or um, even the Captain America Iron Man was a casualties of war one shot or things where you you get more exploration into the, the two leaders in this battle that I don't think uh, the main series has gotten that well right you know what Civil War is to me? Remember your science textbook in high school and you had the acetate pages with the human body on them and you had the, yeah. the, the top layer was the outline of the human form and the skin and, the, you know, the external features and the, uh, the uh, muscles and stuff, but you only saw the surface of them. That, to me, is Civil War, the main series. And then once you flip that, you get the ribs and the lungs and you find out how this sucker works and, and then you flip it again and you get like cross-sections of the, the organs and you actually see the bones. That was the tie-ins to me. They were the real workings of this Civil War story. And the, main, the miniseries proper was only the top layer. They, they could have gotten so far into the minds of these characters, but they decided just to focus on the fights. And I think that lost a lot in the translation. I'm, I'm not putting the series down. I thought the series was really, it was exciting, the art was fantastic, but it could have been so much more. I don't think it was a fumble on Marvel's part, unlike that uh, other event. <laughs> we don't want to go there. Right, but it, it wasn't a touchdown either. Okay. Well, what the touchdown will be what comes next? Cause that, and that's what it is, and I said before. I feel like this was maybe a, a main purpose of Civil War was to get us to this point. I don't know if Civil War... We look at events kind of as um, a means to an end. And where, to say, both companies right now seem to have used their last major events 
as a means to get to a certain point that they want to be at. Right. wonder if this gets us to, if this has gotten us to the point where Marvel wants to be at now to go with whatever directions they want to. Yeah. And that's something that Chris Neesman said at the New York Comic-Con to me. And you'll hear that little clip later on in the show. But he said it was like House of M was the first act, Civil War was the second, and World War Hulk is the third. But I don't think that's... I think that's not fair in terms of a piece of art. If you paid the the uh, cover price for the seven issues, you expect a cohesive story. It's not Civil War and a bunch of tie-ins. It's Civil War, you know? And, and I, I don't think... I think it's weak storytelling to just rely on tie-ins and one-shots to flesh out things that should be in the main series because his storytelling was solid with what he gave us but like i said the storytelling could have been so much better why couldn't paul jenkins's stuff been folded into this make each issue 48 pages and put two writers on the book i mean they must have known what jenkins planned for frontline and does it take a brain surgeon to say you know this norman osborne wrinkle is really important to this series or uh, this meeting with Captain America and Sally Floyd is adds a lot of, of humanity and, and emotion to the story why don't we put that in the, in the big in the main series or I can even see if up front they had kind of said this event kind of needs both of these series at least the way they were selling it up front was here's Civil War and then if you want here's Frontline where now, nine, month, nine ten months later, it, it seems to be that it was here Civil War, and to really get it, here's its sister book that is pretty much right on par, equal to it. And if it's equal to it, it should be it, <laughs> in yeah. my opinion. I mean, if there's information that's crucial to your understanding of the story, it should be in there. Don't publish two books. Y- yes, we're suckers and we're going to buy both of them, but you know, throw us a, a bone once in a while and let's tell a cohesive, all-inclusive story in one miniseries and, and have uh, the uh, tie-ins maybe fleshing out battles or incidents to a degree that you couldn't do in the main series, but don't add any information that would color your opinion of the main story in a different way, which Frontline 11 does. Now here's a, a weird thing, because I'm finding myself after I don't know how many months kind of defending this. As and I've said that I feel like I've kind of missed some things by not reading Frontline, but as someone who's read Civil War, to a point I think that I have gotten almost a complete picture, almost a complete work of art, so... It's difficult to know what you know. What were the, all the purposes? What were the designs for for all the individual books? That's a good question. Uh, did you read Wolverine? Uh, only the first issue, which is just one of my things. That you have this big event that kicked off everything. Then it was fairly well forgotten. My beefs with the story, and there, I've got a few that way. But I think for what the main purpose. And, and focal point of the story was I, I think Civil War did a good job focusing on that but at the same time they spun out all these little 
secondary plots, that those are what seem to be getting, had gotten picked up elsewhere. Well, in terms of Wolverine, it added another layer to the Stanford incident, which was really cool and another thing that was pretty much mirrored in the real world, but it didn't really change your opinion on that incident. You knew that Nitro was there for a reason, and you knew that the New Warriors were kind of pushed into it, whether or not someone actually did the pushing, but they there there were people banking on them reacting to it. So you knew that that was not necessary to to get you know more enjoyment out of the main series. It was just uh, a more detailed look at that incident, which was very welcome as far as I'm concerned. But when when you change the reader's perception of one of the main characters that's not good if you do it in a in a tie-in because you're cheating the people who are buying the min, the main miniseries i don't know if it i don't think it was intentional but and and that i guess that's all i'm going to say about frontline because uh it's going to oh, get good, because this is about civil war number seven i thought what you guys think of Civil War Seven? Be honest. Uh, we talked about this. We talked, this we, we talked about this last night at dinner. I, I think it has the opportunity to pull some really strong parallels to Infinite Crisis Number Seven, and, and I I mean that in, in two ways. Number one, I, as a single issue, as a wrap up to a series, I was underwhelmed. Um, but it leaves the door open for some great opportunity. And, you know, you, you go back, you read Infinite Crisis, uh, great build-up. The first couple issues were fantastic. And it really kind of went out with a limper, a lot of questions, and, and a lot of unresolved uh, issues. But DC came back and really built on that and went in a very positive direction. I think Marvel has the same opportunity where they can, in the next year, if they do it right, we can look back at Civil War as being a great setup for what happened. But I think what a lot of people are looking at is that Civil War was going to have more of a finality to it. Slam bang. And I feel like we're in the second act now. That, that's just kind of my gut on it. Good answer. Good answer as usual. That's right. You have a one-liner you can just hit us with? Uh, my thought, well, you know, you know, as you know, David, my policy is generally not to talk about books that I don't like. So that being said, I have no comment. Excellent. Thank you, Mr. Brian that. Another thing that ticked me off about Civil War Seven, since we seem to be focusing on the less successful aspects of the book, is the fact that Reed and Tony allowed the clone back into battle. Did anyone else find that insane i don't think i did only because i was caught up with the whole battle i don't um i think when i was reading it the time when i was reading it and just trying to make sure nothing was spoiled for me last weekend um i might have just glossed over that but i was like hey you know what here's here's the clone thor and okay you know fine he's he's about to fight and then he was pretty much quickly done away with by Hercules, which was a great visual, which was probably the only reason why the the Thor clone was brought back. So this way, Hercules could do with him whatever he wishes, and that's it. But I am glad that you thought enough about it to say that, you know what, these are two of the smartest people in the Marvel Universe, and here they are bringing someone who just went haywire a few issues back and killed somebody. Scott, 
I guess, you know, I didn't have that much of a problem bringing Chlor back. I, I guess the, uh, my big issue with that, uh, scene where Thor shows up with, uh, with, uh, the Heroes from the Initiative is, you no, know, I got through Captain Marvel to return just to get Captain Marvel on one lousy panel <laughs> in this issue. Right. That, that I think that was more what uh, my beef with that whole part was going, okay, great, Captain Marvel shows up now. This will, I'll get my payoff for the return finally. Oh, no, I won't. Okay. <laughs> well, maybe um, McNiven drew that panel months ago, and then they realized, hey, you know what? Marvell's in a panel in this comic book. We got to figure out a way to bring him back into this panel, <laughs> and that's where we got the return from. I I don't know about <laughs> <laughs> uh, the the whole clone return thing in issue seven bugs the hell out of me because, like David said, Tony and Reed are two of the most intelligent characters in the Marvel Universe to knowingly let an entity that has killed one of their own with a weapon that is devastatingly powerful back into battle makes no sense to me. And I, I, I know why he's in there. I know why Thor's in there because you have to have the balance. You want He, he killed Bill Foster and you want to see him get his. So they have to find a way to balance the scales. Okay, I'm fine with that. Here's, okay. Maybe they want you to think that Reed is smart enough or arrogant enough to feel that he fixed Thor's problems for when he killed Bill Foster, and now he's safe to go out into the battle. Or they want you to think like you did, Vince, and taint Tony's side even further by saying... Now these guys are just really, really stupid because they're bringing Thor back into the battle. Okay, but let's do a little checkup on who we think are the main characters in this in this Civil War saga. We have Reed, Tony, Captain America, Peter Parker. Do we have any other main characters? Are there any that I'm like, like big time players in this series? Are there any I'm missing? Thing? No, 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 no. not so much. I guess I'd even question in the series how big of a player within the seven issues is Reed. He still seems to be, you know, an important secondary character, but I don't know how many main characters I see beyond Iron Man, Captain America. Okay, so why include Hercules in this scenario? Is Hercules is a bit player in this thing. Why... Not Hercules was, on, was at Cap's side throughout every single issue. Right, but he's Hercules, a... Hercules, his right-hand man. He's a B-lister. He's in, 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 Most in, of the characters in this were B-listers. Right, though. but in, in terms of development, he's just eye candy, is what I'm saying. You don't think of Civil War and say, man, I really liked Hercules' role in the, in the, in the series, or that, that Hercules, you know, he's despicable. This Thor thing could have been better served by having Reed realize he's been a a pinhead and throwing Thor in some kind of, you know, compactor and destroying the thing himself. That would have cast Reed in a better light. Maybe they didn't want to do that, but I'm just saying, have one of the major players hinge on Thor's demise. Not Hercules. I mean... But, well, who's to say Hercules isn't going to be a member of the New Champions or whoever? I mean, well, he is, have... but that's not that, that shouldn't concern us in, in terms of Civil War, was what I'm saying. Or Hercules... 
I mean, it doesn't make so. So See, he, he had two good miniseries by Bob Layton, man. Okay. Yeah, but that does nothing for me in terms of Civil War. You know, it's just it's like a Deus ex machina. It's like this thing from above. Oh, Hercules just killed Thor. Great. The, the clone, sorry. It, it doesn't make sense in terms of story. The only reason why it makes sense is because Hercules is a god, supposedly. That's, and, that's exactly what I was just going to say. They have, they have that connection right there. They've, they've, they've been through thick and thin as Avengers. They've, I mean, the issues of Avengers that I read, it was almost like, I mean, I don't want to say sibling rivalry, but I mean, yeah, you had, here was Hercules, and, and here was Thor, and they're both the son of gods, and yeah, it was, I, I really do think that that was the connection that they were playing with. Yeah, in, well, in Civil War number seven, if if that is the case, then I think it was a missed opportunity because they could have used the disposal of Thor to better effect to either make the big time players in the series add another layer to them or take a layer away from them. That's all I'm saying. I think the image of Hercules bringing the hammer down on Thor is a nice one. It's really well done. But to me, it's just, I turned the page and I was like, okay, so Thor's gone by Hercules. Great. Let's, let's get on with the story here. It didn't do anything for me. It was just, I think it was a, uh, actually one of the weaker parts of the issue. But let's move on, unless anyone else has anything to say about that. To go there, I have no idea why Miller uses the, uh, I knew Thor and you're no Thor speech here, because now I'm just picturing uh, Thor as Dan Quayle. <laughs> uh, and that was just one of those really weird things. And just to go, why is it there? I got the feeling that occasionally Miller kind of writes backwards, that he comes up with what he thinks is a great visual idea, and tries to write it in backwards from there, figuring out how it can get it into a book. And I think there have been moments, and that's the biggest one here, is I just think he goes, oh, you know, what would be the coolest thing is to have Thor, you know, you, or have Hercules using Thor's hammer to bash the clone's head in. Okay, now, how do I get that in there? Yeah. Almost as if an afterthought. Yeah, it seems, it's just like one of those big explosive moments that really amounts to nothing, which... You know, occasionally Mark Miller does throw into his stuff that you kind of sit there and go, oh, visually it's kind of cool, but what does it really mean? Uh, why is it there? Right. Well, in, in terms of writing, if you show the gun in the first issue, you better fire the gun by the last yeah. issue, which makes sense. You introduce the Thor, you dispose of the Thor, which is just plain, it, it's very neat, very professional writing. But I think he could have polished the gun a little bit before so he fired it. This? How's this? And I'm just thinking off the top of my head here. So which side? Both sides are trying to claim... Well, one side's trying to claim they have a god on their side. One side actually does have a god on their side. Does that throw any color or into the argument? Is that the pro-registration side sat there and created the, uh, created the clone Thor kind of to... No, I, I think inspire and instill a confidence in them and say, "Look, here's Thor. You know, not many people are going to know that's just a clone of Thor. Here he is. He's on our side." But yet, if you, in the terms of this, if you look at what side really has a god siding with them, that's a good point. You know, if you're looking at story-wise, that I guess could be an argument there. 
the uh, pro-registration side thinks they're something more than they really are. Yeah. Yeah. Which, that's a nice little wrinkle. Yeah, that's cool. Still doesn't work for me, but it's cool. <laughs> and, and I'm just trying to make things up as I go along. I like your explanation better than just, here comes another god disposing of a false god. Did the whole thing with Sue and the Taskmaster need to be in here? I had no problem with it. I, for what it was and how it was handled, I liked it. I think, because uh, I think you, with how Sue and had left Reed earlier in the series, you know, to see her get that angry when, when uh, Reed is shot, I think that just goes, you know, I may not agree with him at this point, I may not like what he's doing, but, but I still love him, and guess what, Taskmaster? You're in trouble now. I may have could have done without his line with the, okay, this isn't good, yeah. because obviously we know that. I think I think it would have been a lot better if we just saw his eyes. Like we did. I mean, yeah. just put your hand over the word balloons, and you already know he's in. He's in, you know, he's he up shit's great. Yeah. And so he's the official Wile E. Coyote of the Marvel Universe uh, after, after being hit by Sue's Acme Force Hammer. But it's a little cartoony. That's probably a step up after being in Moon Knight, but we won't go there. Um, the, I, as far as the whole Thor Hercules thing, the only thing that, um, well, the main thing that jumped out at me was the um, not-so-subtle transition we went through with the change of anchors. Actually, Pat and Dave at, at the convention, they mentioned it as well, and it was just like right there, bam, you just... It wasn't enough to take yet the story naturally, but it was just it, it threw me for a loop because here I am reading it and I'm, and I'm enjoying the art and everything's great and I turn this page and I'm like, well, Thor looks a little different. It looks like it starts on the page with the vision disrupting Iron Man's armor. That's where the different inking starts, I think. Because if you look at the top panel, that does not look like Dexter Vines inked that. No, and it continues on to the uh, onto the next page where you see like the vein in her yeah. arm and and uh, Thor's face. But you're right. So let's focus on more positive aspects of the series. Just one that caught me as really poignant was the fact that Cap fought dirty using the vision to disrupt the armor. And what that said to me was that maybe Mr. Castle had a bigger effect on Steve than he would like to admit and and vice versa. It's not really played out, but you get a, a little seed of the fact that it may play out that when, when Frank picks up Captain America's mask, so Cap may have had a, a big influence on, on Frank, too, which is kind of cool. You got these two guys that are pretty much polar opposites, and they may have learned something from each other, right? which is neat. It's a, it's a nice little trade-off, and it works really well. Which will probably also tie into... Um Punisher War Journal's future storyline. Right, yeah. I, I can't wait to see that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did enjoy seeing, as, as the issue went on, you see a panel here and there of, uh, of buildings in the background on fire or being having a superhero thrown into it. Um, because when I did get to that, that panel where Cap's looking around, it wasn't like, you know, all of a sudden he just looks up and there's all these buildings on fire and you're wondering how this happened. You saw it as the issue went on. You got to see, you know, McNiven was smart enough to know that these shouldn't just be empty background panels with, with word balloons or bright colors. We really need to see what's going on in the city that they're fighting in. 
Yeah, and related to that, I think if there was one masterstroke that Miller did in the seven issues was the fact that he allowed the common man to take down Captain America. That was the genius of Mark Millar in this series. Because to make these average Joes the catalyst that causes Captain America to realize that he's the key to stopping this very war, if Cap is is the Constitution on two legs and have ordinary citizens take this thing down in a group, that's very important because it says something else. Not only it says that, you know, on the surface, a bunch of guys brought down Captain America. It says something about real life, the parallels that this book has to what we're going through now. And it says that if everyone bands together, you can change things. You can change the way our government works. Because if you have your representatives and they act out of accord with the citizens that's what captain america was doing it wasn't his actions didn't have the common man in mind he had his own desires and 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 you know he wanted tony stark and tony wanted cap and we we see this every day on the news that uh, our representatives don't act with us in mind so to say that you have a bunch of common people changing the course of this character's actions that's very very poignant in my mind it's saying that, hey, people, work together. You can do it. You can bring this sucker down, change the way things are, make them better. And, but on the surface, though, this, this to me shows that Steve is more a hero now than he's ever been. Yeah. He, he knows when the, when the fighting went down to. I think that was the big thing. He realizes that there is, there is a point that maybe it is easy to cross over. Yep. And, uh, and how close he can come to it. I think it was the battle friends fighting friends and friends dying and you know when a friend dies that has to get your blood pumping I I want justice I want you know let's avenge this guy we are the Avengers so you can understand how Steve got blindsided by the death and destruction around him and just focused on the the prize so to speak which was Tony Stark and his group but it takes a I think from these pages uh, where he surrenders that it takes a real hero to kind of discard that that desire to beat your opponent in light of the real reason that you've thrown the costume on in the first place was to protect the citizens and that's what that wasn't what he was doing and so Steve realized that and it gives me great joy to know that if he wanted to he could have taken off Tony's head he had him he did Tony was down and out, and all it would have taken was a nice... I don't think Cap would have done it. I think I think he would have realized that, you know, okay, I'm just going to beat him. I'm not going to kill him. But if he wanted to, he could have removed that, that head from the rest of the body, which gives, yes. gives me great comfort. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm sure it gives Derek Coward zero comfort, but that's, that's sure. enti- entirely fitting. <laughs> Everybody started calling Jack the king of the comics, and at first he was embarrassed by it because Jack never thought of himself as being any better than anyone else. He was just another guy trying to make a buck, doing his best work, uh, trying to bring home a paycheck every week. But eventually so many people were surrounding Jack and telling him that he was the king that finally he said, okay, all right, I'm the king, fine. Jack's only interest in in comics was in telling the story. 
He didn't want to ink his own work because that wasn't involved with storytelling. Uh, all he cared about was that the story was told. He didn't even like drawing covers very much because if he was called upon to draw a cover, it was usually for a story he'd already finished, and he wasn't interested in that story anymore. He was interested in the next one. All he wanted to do was just to to tell stories in visual form, and anything he could do that would make the story more interesting and would make the points clearer, he would do. And if it meant changing perspectives or or changing a human anatomy or defying laws of physics of the page, he would do it if he thought it was advancing the story. All he really cared about was getting from the beginning of the story to the end of the story and taking the reader on a very interesting journey along that way. He didn't care if people said, oh, what neat pictures. That, that held no, no joy for him. He wanted them to say, what a great story. And he believed in impact. He believed in, in jolting the reader. He believed in making an impact, of grab, reaching out of the page and grabbing the reader and shaking him by the collar and slapping him upside the head. That's why he had so many characters leaping out. He did these forced perspectives because he just wanted to express uh, what he was feeling and have you as the reader feel it as well. To Jack, he was doing an opera. He was doing a story that was larger than life, where everybody was, was singing Rigoletto the whole time. In terms of the series as a whole, I think it's probably the most successful Marvel event creatively since Secret Wars. Because... When you have a series that changes the entire status quo of the Marvel Universe, that's big doings. Nothing, yeah. I mean, it's, let's just say it lasts for two years, and we'll say nothing is ever going to be the same. But this thing put a lot of, it gen, is responsible for generating a lot of future storylines, which is perfect. I mean, it's a great miniseries. Was House of M a great miniseries? No. No. You know, the, <laughs> no, I, I don't think I should have to go into it because those that have read it haven't endured enough pain, so I won't make them relive it. But this is rife with possibilities. I want to know what's going to happen to Steve. I want to know this this initiative, this 50 states initiative. I want to see where this goes and if it's successful. It makes me enthusiastic about the Marvel Universe, which is what a miniseries should do. Scott? I love, uh, just for talking about the ending a bit, I love that there's two different teams claiming to be the Avengers now that are still kind of continuing the the battles that were started in this series. Mm -hmm. um, particularly when, at, up in the beginning, when Cap actually yells, Avengers assemble, and Bishop on the pro registration side saying, hey, I thought we were the Avengers. <laughs> um, I thought that was a great moment. And now at the end that you've got still a couple of teams that are are, are continuing the, the fights on each of their sides, even though one's being called the radicalized underground movement. Um, yeah, that doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. I'm hoping that they're going to do something with that title. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, do you see who's in that movement? You have Luke Cage, Spider-Man, Spider-Woman. Iron. Who's sitting yeah. in between Cage and Spider-Woman? Doctor Strange. Yep. yep. Who has been... I, I, I want to know how he how he got there. Yeah. yeah. Well, why did he, he decide that side? Because the last issue, yeah. he was 
talking to Uatu and, and was basically saying, you know, he's got to sit this one out. Don't forget Iron Fist. Iron Fist is going to be a member? Yep. Okay. And and that that team to me is infinitely more interesting than the Mighty Avengers. Yeah, but you got one demand in the Safari. Jar. But the uh, but you're right because I mean they have Sentry on their team and Sentry really doesn't do much for me. I was going to say, well, forget that. You've got a team with the Shooting Star and the Texas Twister in Texas. They're yes. the ultimate team. <laughs> That's the team I want to read about. An armadillo. And getting back to Bishop real quick at the beginning, I was telling Vince earlier that this is why I feel that thought bubbles are necessary. That they're need. I I. To me, Bishop's an idiot. If he's got to turn and say aloud that I thought our side was the Avengers, you don't. I. I'm. I just. I can't. Ah. I, I, I. It really does. It, it does burn me that we got rid of thought bubbles and sound effects for certain things so that we can get captions or the characters saying aloud something that they should be thinking to themselves. That that takes me out of a story more so than bad art or something out of left field, things like that. To, to hear somebody say aloud something that they should keep to themselves is just completely boggles my mind. Yeah, well, the fact he got chumped by Spider-Man kind of balances the scales. Actually, no, Cap puts his head in the ground. Yeah, and then Spider-Man kicks the and crap out of him. Yeah, later. yeah. Not only Bishop, but Samson and Radioactive Man, too. It's like Spider-Man and must Death have... Strike and Venom. Yeah. Must have take, and, uh, taken his vitamins. Reed. Yeah, yeah. That scene with Reed was really nice, where he's sitting there bouncing around. But th- that, too. I mean, Reed's never seen Spider-Man in action. Give me a break. I know. I know. You needed a whole page yeah. for that. You're right. Yeah. But, I mean, the, the wordplay was kind of cool. Amazing, spectacular. Yeah. It's, nobody said it, web of. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> unlimited. It's, it's, uh, it's, an, it's a nice nod to the fans. But in terms of the story, it really doesn't do anything. Right. There were definitely some panels that could have been either cut in half or eliminated or just, you know, I mean, we could have had words to move the story along or um, or pictures to move the story along without so many words. It was just, there was some, there were some redundancy issues going on here. Yeah. The whole seven issues, they work for me. I, I really enjoyed this series. I think issue seven was a mixed bag, but the fact that the way the issue rounds out was perfect i i really appreciated that that part of the the issue some of the battles eh whatever they were nice eye candy maury's fantastic so was steve and dexter they're they're very very good I, i i love their art it was beautiful to look at but let's for the next event don't give me independence day give me aliens Okay, let let's have a thinking <laughs> miniseries instead of just all slam bam. Let's you know blow shit up. You don't want a Michael Bay production. This this was probably the most cerebral miniseries Marvel has ever published. That that entails the whole Marvel universe. You like I said, you're talking about human rights. That's an amazing challenge for a writer to 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 try and struggle with concepts like that in terms of superheroes, which was great. Let's have more of that, but a little bit less of the uh, pyrotechnics next time, please. I'm not saying I didn't like it. I, I liked it fine. It just uh, I think a, a better balance could have been struck, and and that would have been if they put stuff that was in other magazines. And yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, you know. Scott, series as a whole. Series as a whole... There was a lot of potential here, 
Uh, I think at some points it reached it. At some point, it uh, it didn't. Um, like I said, I think I, I like it for how it's set up. You know, maybe the next year, a couple of years of, of the Marvel Universe. Uh, looking forward to how these these differences ultimately play out. But as a whole, I think they're they're and, and not even talking about scheduling. But I think there could have been a lot of better planning and how stuff was put together on it. Okay. I think that was the biggest weaknesses. There's there's a lot of holes within these seven issues. The most enjoyment I got out of this series was because of the parallels Mil- Miller drew with the real world. That was the meat for me. I really really appreciated that. I don't want every miniseries to be the Infinity Gauntlet, where like you have a bad person who's trying to do a bad thing, and all the heroes band together to take out the bad person. That's fun, and you know the first fifty or sixty times we've seen it, it, it it's but it's still your standard superhero story, good versus evil. This was different. It was good versus good in a manner of speaking, brother against brother, and it brought up issues that we all need to think about and talk about. This, to me, was... The the premise behind this series was perfect. The execution in these seven issues by the writer, eh, I give him an 80, 75, 80. He, he tried real hard, and a lot of it was successful, but there was a percentage of it that wasn't, and a lot of useless stuff in here, but... The art made up for it because it was fantastic, and I can't say enough about it. We've said a lot about it before, but it's just beautiful artwork. Premise was there as a whole, very successful, but it could have been a lot more successful, in my opinion. That's, a, I guess that's all I can say about it. He had the framework there, but uh, he forgot a couple walls. David? I liked it. I think you pretty much summed up some of my and any any negatives that I had toward it I didn't I don't think I had a problem so much with the story as, as the way some of it was um, as some of the aesthetics I mean that's the story could have been something else and if, if I wasn't thrilled with the art then we would have been talking about something else but I, I really had no problem with the story overall I didn't want to see a death I didn't or, or a death between you know, Captain America and, and Iron Man I I, I still you know, I'm I'm sorry that that they decided to kill Goliath to, to to show to prove a point with with the with the Thor clone. But um, no, I, I really I, I don't have anything I can complain about at the moment. Maybe as as I um, I'm going to reread the whole seven issues and um, and the eleven frontline issues and um, see if I have a different opinion. But I mean, as far as after reading number seven, any problems with the series as a whole? No, I, I don't. Okay. He unmasked Peter Parker. That's a big deal in terms of future storylines. He pit Captain America against Iron Man. That's a big deal. He split the Avengers into two groups. He put a superhero team in in every state. The the repercussions of this series are going to be felt for a long time. So, yeah, it, it was really successful, both in terms of the story what Miller did and in terms of what's going to happen I'm like I said really interested and I'm excited about the Marvel Universe not true 
in light of the competition story. That, that The ending of that series turned me off completely. This bolstered my enjoyment of what I got and what's to come. That's what a miniseries is supposed to do. So it was successful in my mind, but it could have been more successful. So there you go. I'm sure we'll have more discussions on this topic because this is not a miniseries that's going to go away or be forgotten. The shockwaves of this series are going to be felt for a long time, and I bet you there's going to be some more shockwaves coming summer 2007 when old Greenskin comes back. So this is just Act 2, and we're going to see what happens when Hulk comes back. So yeah, Yeah, I guess I'll be buying Hulk again. It's not a bad thing. <laughs> well, thank you, Scott, for being with us. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Always fun to join you guys. So for Vince. And for David. And for Scott. Join us next week for more discussion on the Mighty Marvel Universe. Dave, Dave Wachter. Wachter.